We've been talking about uh, growing deep. This has been our focus since October. This is a long time. You guys are really sticking with this. I mean, just to see, see you showing up and, and ready to talk more about discipleship or look at this idea of discipleship. And, and this is really the great invitation of Jesus, that we would follow him and, and follow his ways. We would follow his teachings. We would follow what he did and, and what he modeled for us in his life. And the reason this is so important and we're looking at this is because we, we see this discipleship crisis in the church. The church has largely, when I say the church, I'm speaking of our context, Western U.S. culture. Uh, the church has transitioned over a period of time to more of an event, something that people attend and it's very event driven and we come to and we experience it but not as much discipleship. There's always some discipleship. So that's not an indictment saying we're not doing anything. It's saying that the challenge is that as the culture becomes more about events and concerts and different things, the church can slip into that. I as a pastor can fall into providing for all of us events or things for us to attend and, and listen to, but not be as engaged in, to, to not ourselves be disciple makers. And that's the great invitation by Jesus. As he told his disciples, when he called them out, he said, come and follow me. And it wasn't a come and follow me in terms of your mental understanding. It was come follow me literally, like follow after me, walk in my steps, do what I do, say what I say. And so when he says to us at the end of, uh, in math, in the end of the book of Matthew, he says something similar. He says, now you go, telling the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he's essentially passing the torch, right, onto them and saying, now I've completed my work. I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to you. You'll be empowered to do the things that I just modeled for you, showed you how to do. And and that didn't disappear with the disciples. That didn't kind of go away with that first wave of the early church. That continues on today. That's the same calling. The, The calling that they received is the same calling that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have today to be a disciple who makes disciples. And so that's why we're taking so much time on it, because this is the very core of what Jesus asks us to do. So how do we, how do we make disciples? Well, let me highlight a couple things that we've been, we've been looking at. And the overall goal, right, is that when we do this, we experience the life that Jesus calls us to. Jesus said he'll give us abundant life, not an eek by life or a meager life or, or just you'll do better than the next person life. He says, I'll give you abundant life. And that's been interpreted so many different ways, right? Over time, it's been interpreted, well, we're going to have, you know, nothing's going to happen bad is going to happen to us. Life is going to go just totally smoothly. That was, that's not what Jesus promised. <laughs> that's not what Jesus promised. Well, you're going to have a life where abundance means you're going to be, have prosperity. You're going to have the all the riches of the world are going to come at your lap because you're following me. That's abundant life. That's not what Jesus promised. In fact, we look through the New Testament. We see oftentimes the followers of Jesus suffered more intensely than those who are outside of the church. And so it's not that a, a statement against those things. It's just saying that's not abundant life. That's not how Jesus defined abundant life. The way that Jesus defined abundant life is he said, you're going to take my yoke upon you my burden is going to be light. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love how the message paraphrased that. It's a paraphrase of the scriptures. It says it this way, that when Jesus says those words, he says, you're going to live freely and lightly. How many of us this morning would say, oh, I would love to live freely and lightly. Just go through my days freely and lightly. It just seems like things don't weigh me down. I'm, life is just has this flow to it. Just, I'm just moving through life in a way that it's just free and light. That's, when I hear that invitation from Jesus, I think that's abundant life. That's the type of life that I desire is just to live in such a way that I, things matter to me, but I'm not burdened down by things. Instead, I'm, his burden is light on me, right? And I'm living freely and lightly. So here's how we've kind of looked at some of these areas. How do we get to living freely and lightly? One is beneath the surface discipleship. And we started that in October and we said, listen, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to not be afraid of our past, but we also don't live there. So beneath the surface discipleship says we go back to all of the influences in our life. Say, we recognize we grew up in a particular culture through a particular lens. So we say, well, how did my parents, my family of origin, how did that affect my discipleship and where I'm at now? And oftentimes in the church, it's come about where we say, well, we don't need to talk about the past. I'm a new creation in Christ. All things are made new. The old is gone, right? And so we just take the past. We, we sometimes hear this mentality and we just shove it all off to the side. And then we say, only thing that matters is here going forward with Jesus. But what we find after we follow Jesus for a little while, we go, huh, how come I can't shake this past thing? <laughs> How come the stuff from the past keeps revisiting and I keep in these same cycles and do the things that I seem stuck with? How come I see so much of my family of origin in my own life and even things that I wish were different, how come I'm experiencing some of the same stuff? And so oftentimes that's because we haven't submitted our past under the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is that we haven't gone back and said, how did my parents' influence on me, how did my extended family's influence on me affect how I see life and how I follow Jesus? Because if we say, well, it doesn't have any influence because I made a decision for Christ, we're honestly not being truthful with ourselves. I am a child and was raised in a home that had certain rules and a certain approach to life. And for every one of us, that's true. And there were things that were positive about that. And for some of us, really positive. And a few things that maybe need to be changed out or swapped out to align with the kingdom of God. And others who had really difficult childhood and upbringing with a lot of things that don't match the kingdom life. And so what we want to do is we, we look at that and we say, I'm not afraid of my past. I'll go back. I'll deal with that stuff. My hurts, the, the woundings, the things that have affected me, but I don't live there. That's not where I stay. I'm not debilitated and stuck there because of my new life in Jesus. Amen? Because Jesus has set me free, I can freely go back and address that stuff and be healed of those things, the words that were spoken, the actions that happened in my life when I was younger, or even things that I did on my own, my, my own bad decisions before coming to Christ, or even when I walked away from Jesus, bad decisions that I made. 
and how that's influenced now where I'm at. So I'm not afraid to go back, but I don't live there. I live under the grace and the mercy of Christ. I live in the freedom that he's bringing. And so, in a sense, we're being reparented. We're reparented by Scripture, reparented by the Spirit, reparented by Father God as we submit ourselves to his discipleship. The next thing we looked at, through, especially through the holidays, is we looked at living a slowed-down spirituality. <laughs> How many times have you said, ah, can life just stop for a moment, right? It's just spinning. It's all just moving. And uh, we, we had an opportunity this last fall, Jerry and I and, and uh, our daughter May, we had a, a week um, where we got to go down to Branson, Missouri, and we watched a Chinese acrobat show. And uh, incredible talent they're doing. Well, one of the things they were doing was spinning the plates. Have you ever seen those types of things? Yeah. And they're spinning plates, and they're spinning them on their foot and their hand and somebody else on their head. And I mean, they're spinning these, doing dances and moving. And you're just like, these things are attached. Like, I know, you know, these things, these things are attached. And then they finish and they kind of like lift up and they all just kind of come dropping down, right? To show you these weren't attached, right? But the whole time they're moving, they're, they're watching everything. I mean, I feel like that at times in my life, right? Like it's all going and if I don't keep moving, it's all going to crash down. And that can be the tendency that we, of the culture around us, the way that it moves and it gets going so fast. And if we have children and we're raising kids in our work and and expectations that other people might have of us. And so we talked about this idea of we, we need to be, if we're going to be intentional about being with Jesus, we have to reset our pattern. We have to change our pace. And we have to start saying, well, I, I can do this, but I, I can't do that. I can't say yes to that. I can't agree to everything. I have to do the things that Jesus asks me to do. Right? And we put an emphasis on being with Jesus more than doing things for Jesus. Right? Because the tendency can be, well, the more I do for Jesus, the happier it is with me, even if that squeezes out my being with him. They're the same thing, my doing for and my being with. And Jesus would show us in his own life that's not true. Jesus says, I only do the things the Father tells me to do. All these things he could have done how many times did Jesus walk away from a revival, feeding of the 4,000? You know, it's like large crowds and, wow, stay there, Jesus. <laughs> That's the way we would do it. You've got this massive crowd. Stay there. Make a revival meeting out of it. Heal people, right? And so the, the disciples even told him, hey, more people are coming. He says, we need to get away from here. I have other places I need to go. That doesn't make sense in, in our current marketing mindset for churches is you get a crowd, you keep the crowd, you build the crowd, you don't walk away from it. And what does Jesus do? He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. <laughs> the crowd, whoop, <laughs> they disappear. They're like, this guy's weird. Like, I don't know what he's, this is hard. This is what he's, and the disciples, you know, they're frustrated about that. We just lost this crowd. And Jesus is like, we're okay. We're okay. So slowing down in spirituality. Healthy community. So this is where we just finished up, and, and uh, my wife, Jerry, just did a fantastic job uh, presenting last, last week. Can I parenthetically say the reason, you know, I'm going to embarrass her for a moment, but the reason that was kind of a big deal is you got to witness her discipling and following Jesus. 
this is not her element. She loves teaching. She presents all the time in school districts. She does not get on the platform. And she had her own fears and things that were kind of working in her to cause her to, everything within her basically said, I'll just not do it. I'll just, let me just not do it. And I'll just forget about it. But she really felt like the Lord was encouraging her to do it, to share what he had put on her heart and to work past this so that she could present. And so the goal wasn't so much to have her up, but to allow her to disciple through. And God used her wonderfully last week. So I I wanted you to hear that because sometimes we think that people on platforms are just, that's what they do when they just talk. No, you got to witness a discipleship moment as she was working through her own sense of anxieties and fears and surrendering that for the Lord to be able to walk through it. So healthy community, we talked about unity and diversity, the gender differences, ethnicity, generations, and how as a congregation, how we grow by being one in Christ and how important that is. Well, this transition, this morning is a a transition morning, and we're talking about passionate marriages and singleness. And in each of these, we're basically saying that we're needing to relearn or be reparented by Heavenly Father in these areas of our life. We have to be free from the things that conform us to the patterns of this world. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about. Don't be conformed any longer by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so there's no area that needs more transformation than in marriage and singleness in our culture. There is no single area that faces more difficulties from outside in the culture around it, pressing on these areas than in marriage and singleness. It's been twisted, it's been bent in so many ways that it's largely unrecognizable if you held up what Scripture lists as a Christian marriage versus just marriage in the world. It hardly seems like the same thing if you were to hold up what Scripture teaches. So this has been true, though, ever since the fall. So when you think about what happened at the fall is that mankind, Adam and Eve, decided that they were no longer going to pursue God's pathway, but they were going to live life on their terms. And so as a result of the fall, from that point forward, you saw every relationship, you saw everything being bent and twisted in a way that no longer represented the Word of God or the Spirit of God. It was, in fact, we say, you know, marriage and, and singleness looks really wrong today, and it's through the lens that we're seeing our culture But really, if you you look at the scriptures, right from that point, from where Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, we see every kind of relational brokenness. There's abandonment, there's promiscuous men and women, there's polygamy, there's same-sex relationships, and it goes on and on throughout scripture. The scripture doesn't hide that this has been around, this is a a human problem, it's not a modern-day problem. It's been around forever. And so... I love that the Bible, it's so helpful to us that it identifies all these broken relationships throughout all of history. And so that when we read it, it's put in perspective and we go, oh, we have a sin problem. (laughs) We have a relationship. It's not just relationship or marriage or singleness problem. We have a sin problem and that's been happening throughout all of time. And so how do we uh, move, move out of this? Scripture puts it on display, but just so I can convince you if you need convincing, here's what it looks like in our culture. 
Approximately 45% of marriages end in divorce. Now you in the United States, and you might say, oh, I thought it was half. So that's an improvement, only 45%. The shift is that fewer people are getting married and more are living together. So that's the decline. It's not that the statistic is getting better. It's that there's fewer people who are actually getting married. And so of those marriages, there's fewer of them, but fewer of those that do uh, get married are ending in divorce, 5% fewer than in the past. Of those that are married, 24% say they're happily married. More than half of kids live in broken families, meaning their mom and dad no longer uh, live together and they don't live in a home with a, uh, their, their birth mother and father. In 1960, here's, here's a pretty crazy comparison. In 1960, I know we're going back a long ways, but 5.3% of kids were in homes outside of marriage. 1960, 5.3%. And now 37.5% are in homes outside uh, that, have, that, that are uh, married couples. Cohabitating has increased 1,000% over the past 40 years. Couples that cohabitate prior to marriage have a 25% success rate. That confuses people because they think, oh, if we live together, we're trying it out, right? We're kicking the tires. It means more likely that when we do get married, it's going to work out better for us. And everything around that says, nope, doesn't work that way. Because your lack of commitment and your uh, trying things out ahead of time actually works against because you remain more individual instead of bonded together. Um, So 25% success rate. 1.2 million households have same-sex partners in them as the couple that's in in the house. And then the shift in the culture, even the language shift, is from uh, the use of the word couple instead of marriage. So oftentimes now, you hardly hear the word marriage when it's put on, on TV or something that way. The word couple is replaced because marriage now has a much lower priority, lower value in the culture around us. So why is this important to us? Why, when we're talking about discipleship, uh, you know, here's why it's important. is because the Bible has some things to talk about this. And if we're following Jesus, then we say, well, I, I want to be able to understand what healthy relationship, what does healthy marriage and singleness look like? Now, I come from this place. We start out, uh, start out here, and I want to begin with my limitation. My limitation is that we have, every Sunday, we have 40 minutes. There is no way possible to address every type of situation every life situation that somebody's in, in 40 minutes. So what it can often feel like is like I'm throwing darts at people, that I am throwing stones and, and making accusations or putting people down because of decisions they've made or their parents made or situations that they live in. I want you to understand that's a limitation I have. I can't possibly address every possible situation that an individual might have for the relationships that they have being broken or whole. Um, that's, that's my limitation. And so I hope you understand that when I speak, that I'm not picking out a particular person or a particular scenario and throwing a stone at it. I'm saying this is a reality, and here's what Scripture has to say about that reality, and here's how we move towards wholeness. Here's how we move towards healing in that area. The other limitation I have is that uh, I'm a, a married man. And I have been for nearly 30 years. So when I talk about singleness and what that looks like and that experience, uh, I was married at the age of 21. So my window of singleness is limited. And so I'm going to 
have difficulty understanding or speaking to those of you who have either have been or are currently single and have been for a much longer period of time and the challenges that you have. So I want you to hear that I recognize that. So when I speak, please understand I'm speaking from a limitation. Um, and I hope you hear that not as an excuse. It's just a, real, it's just a limitation. It's just something that it, when I'm teaching, you have to hear it through that filter. Okay? Let's pray. I have a couple of scriptures I want to highlight, and then we'll uh, be able to touch on a couple of things, and we'll go from there. Lord, thank you. I thank you that um, where I have limitation, you have none. And so I pray, Father, that uh, for those that would hear condemnation, that you would, Holy Spirit, speak to them uh, about what your direction is for healing to come. Where brokenness has happened, where you would speak wholeness and a pathway forward. Uh, Lord, where there's my limitation of understanding, Lord, that you would speak to an individual's situation very specifically, very precisely. And I know you do this all the time, God, and so I thank you for it. I thank you that somebody who has a question this morning about how they deal with this spouse that isn't on board with them in terms of their faith, Lord, you know their situation and how they're best to deal with that individual. And so, God, I, you're so gracious and, and loving in that you see each of us individually. Right now, God, you don't see a crowd in this room. You see a whole bunch of individuals who have very unique lives and challenges and you are not deaf to those, God. So I thank you that you can speak to us out of the Scriptures and through your Holy Spirit in ways that are very personal to us. I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So begin this morning with this idea that both marriage and singleness are callings through which we serve Christ. Let me say that again just so you kind of hear it as a, a clear statement. Both marriage and singleness are callings through which we serve Jesus Christ. Now, when I use the word calling, sometimes we tend to think of that as a clergy thing. I've been called of God. Um, I have this calling to accomplish this. Or if it's not clergy, it's a project. It's a, a mission, right? I grew up with Blues Brothers having a mission, being on a mission from God. Not that mission. The calling is different. The calling... When we talk about callings, we highlight four main callings that we have in our life. The first one is our call to Jesus Christ, to love and to follow Jesus Christ. That is our first and primary calling. And these are in order, by the way. First and primary calling is to Jesus Christ. So there's never a situation where God calls you to do something at the expense of your relationship with him. So if you're compromising your walk with Christ to accomplish something for Christ, you heard it wrong. He wants you to abide with Him, to remain with Him. He is your first love. He is the one whom you are called to first. The second is that you are called to a loving relationship, either with a spouse and then others or the other relationships you have in your life if you're single. So you are called to loving relationships. That's our second calling. So again, if you're married, God would never call you, has never called somebody to accomplish something for him, put them on mission at the expense of their spouse. Never sacrifices a person for the accomplishment of something that can be done, a project or something that way. So if you're married, your spouse is the next person you're called to. If you're single, the loving relationships that you have between your family and your closest relationships are your calling. 
They are the ones in whom you are committed to and that God is not asking you to sacrifice them. He's asking you to fulfill your calling in relationship to them. You see the difference? This is important for us to understand because oftentimes it's gotten twisted where we say, well, didn't Jesus say, unless you leave your household and your mother, father, unless you sacrifice all of that, you're not worthy of me. Therefore, I should be willing to sacrifice my marriage, sacrifice my relationship with my kids, sacrifice everything to pursue Jesus. If we hear it through that lens, we've got it twisted. When Jesus says, unless you're willing to leave everything to follow me, he's saying, unless you're willing to leave everything to be my disciple. Unless I have the highest point, which is where I started out with, Jesus is your first calling. Unless Jesus is your first calling, you've got it wrong. So when Jesus says, sacrifice everything to pursue me, he's not saying, diminish them, sacrifice your relationships with them. He's saying, unless I remain in that top spot, you've got it flipped around. You've got it, you've got it turned around. The next one is, we are called to love others. And that just means the people in your life, your coworkers, your neighbors, you are called, I am called to love people in my life, whether they're my family or not. Remember, so calling to love Jesus, follow Jesus, pursue him. A calling to love our spouse, or if we're single, the meaningful family relationships, close relationships in our life. And then third, we're called to love those people around us, to sacrificially show and demonstrate the love of Christ to our neighbors uh, to our coworkers and, and to others that God brings into our life. Fourthly, we're called to fulfill a role. So as a pastor, I love this role. I love what I do. This is my fourth calling. I first love Jesus. And then I'm married. So my second calling is to love my wife well and my, my children and to demonstrate the love of Christ through them. My third calling is to Love people, whether they're part of the church or not, whether they're my responsibility as a pastor or not. I'm just called to love people. And then lastly, I'm called in my role as a pastor to serve in this capacity. And so if God takes away this role, I still am fulfilling all of my other responsibilities, all my other callings. Do we follow? We're on the same, same page? Oftentimes it gets switched and we say, well, the project or the thing, the role that God calls me to gets elevated to a point. But the reality is, if I'm not loving people well, it's impossible for me to fulfill my calling of a project or a place or a mission that he calls me to. If I don't love my spouse well, how am I ever going to serve other people well? In fact, Paul says that in 1 Timothy when he's addressing Timothy. He's he's saying, listen, you want to know who's a good pastor or a good minister, a good leader in the church? Look at his family. Because he should be loving his family well. And if he's loving his family well, then he's probably capable of loving the church well and taking care of people in the church. But if he's not, you should probably have a a flag that goes up and go, what's going on there? So there's this indication we love Jesus, we're called to love him, we're called to our loving relationships of family or spouse, we're called to love others, and then we're called to fulfill a role. So in light of this, marriage is a calling and singleness is a calling. It's part of what we're called to live out our life for Christ in. It's the relational position through which we demonstrate the life and love of Jesus. Now, historically, we tend to elevate in modern uh, church culture, and I say modern, the past 1,500 years, (laughs) uh, marriage above singleness. But prior to the Reformation, singleness was elevated above marriage. 
If you were devout to God, you remained single. You took vows to be celibate and remain single for the purpose of the kingdom. That was for the first 1,500 years of the church. But over time now, we've elevated marriage a little bit higher than singleness. Said, well, if you're going to be in ministry and you're going to serve God or God's going to use you, you're probably going to be married and he's going to work through you and, and you're going to have a spouse who can you know, minister alongside of you and the two of you are going to do that together. But that, that's not a real scriptural position. They both are callings and have, both have great weight to them. So let me read from Genesis 2, 21 to 25. It'll be on the screen here as well. This is the account of the creation of Eve and then God joining them together. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up uh, its place with flesh. And the rib that, it, uh, that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she, has taken, she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So real important, verse 24 there, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I'll talk about this uh, in one of the coming weeks, about specific to marriage. In fact, I'll take a, a Sunday and talk specifically about marriage. I'll take a Sunday and talk about singleness. And I think we can both learn from either one, whichever uh, place we're at in our, our life. But let me highlight this. So when God brings Eve to Adam and forms her out of his rib, and we see this, and he joins them together, all of a sudden there's this union And it is a calling that he gives to them. That's that verse 24 part. They have a calling. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. That's their calling. There's three things in there that we'll talk about later on that are the calling of a married person that uh, both a man and a woman has in relationship to marriage. But as followers of Jesus, they are first lovers of God before they are lovers of one another. Again, we go back to that first part. Before they can give to one another, they have to first give themselves to Christ. The marriage was never meant to bear the weight of your spouse being God. No marriage can bear the weight of a spouse taking the role or taking the place of God. And by that, we just say, by myself looking to my wife, or if your wife looking to your husband, For that person to give you your identity, to give you your purpose, to give you your sense of self-worth, to give you uh, your understanding of being loved, your spouse can never take the place of God. If we're created in the image of God, we get all of those things from our Heavenly Father. And then we're in relationship in marriage through which our relationship to Christ expresses itself. So it's a calling. It's a calling. My calling by God, as a married man, my calling by God is to love Jesus Christ through loving my spouse. Together we bear fruit through our marriage that blesses other people. So if I, as a pastor, I keep using myself, but I just want you to see kind of a visual representation of this. If I, as a pastor, can only fulfill this role, I believe in my mind, I can only fulfill this role 
by neglecting things at home, by making my wife, Jerry, have to uh, suffer through me being gone all the time and I'm not present with the kids, if my calling for God comes at the expense of my marriage, I'm doing it wrong. My first calling is to Christ, but then it expresses itself through my calling as a married man. And so my marriage isn't sacrificed by my calling and pursuit of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's not something that I negotiate so I can serve Christ better. I've heard this as a pastor, you know, people who like making, in the, as a couple, their idea is, well, I married her because she was committed to, to do the same ministry that I was. That's romantic. <laughs> How... How precious is that? She had a devotion to God and I had a devotion to God and together we had double our efforts and influenced the kingdom. Well, not if you're not demonstrating the love of Christ through your marriage, you're not. Your marriage reflects the love of God through which you then accomplish what God wants to do in your life. So your marriage isn't a negotiation of who can, how can I accomplish what I want out of Your marriage is a reflection of what God wants to accomplish out of your life. It's the love of God working through you as as a married couple. So, being single, likewise, is a calling. Now, this is where, again, I say I have limitations, but I don't have limitations in terms of what Scripture teaches. Being single is also a calling. Now, while marriage is intended to be a lifetime calling from the point of vows being taken, and that's the way it's identified in Scripture, God displays His covenant of love through a married couple. So that's why there's instructions, and Jesus speaks about this, that what God has put together and unified, men shouldn't separate out. Because it's not a reflection of their ability to commit to a marriage, it's a reflection of God's covenant to us in union with us. And that's why the imagery is so strong and the, and the connection that God makes between man and wife and God and his relationship to his people. And so, in fact, Jesus is <clears throat> teaching about this. I'll get there in just a moment. But he's teaching this because the Sadducees, uh, Pharisees come to him and they say, what do you think about divorce? Uh, Moses allowed us to divorce. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, I think he got it wrong. You want to make excuses or opportunities to separate when God would have it that you would find reasons to stay together. It's God's desire that you would always remain together. And so then the disciples follow up with a question I'll get to in just a moment. But again, as I mentioned, historically singleness uh, for the first 1,500 years was this very esteemed place to be. That person showed great devotion to Christ and a commitment to the kingdom of God because they remained single and they took vows before God to do so. To say, Lord, you are now uh, as my husband or my wife, my spouse, and I commit myself to you so that I might serve in your kingdom. And so it had this point of elevation of, wow, this person should be honored within the church. And then after the Reformation, as with many things, uh, Luther was opposed to many things in the Catholic church. And so he kind of flipped it on its head. And he was a little more negative about that approach. The, the more balanced approach is to say they both have great value and we should honor both within the body of Christ. So in, in this context, uh, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They ask him about marriage. He says, 
listen, you should be married for the entirety of your life. The disciples come afterwards. And I always love this because this is the way the disciples come <laughs> afterwards, asking a couple questions. And they say, Lord, then isn't it really better to be single? Yeah, it's, it is. It's a humor point, right? Because he's saying, no, you shouldn't divorce. You should stay together. You shouldn't have a reason. And you, your vows should be for the entirety of your life. And they're thinking this through. And they're like, "Ooh, Like, forever, forever? Like, you know, this man, this woman, they're, like, we're together forever? As long as we're drawing breath? And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's a hard thing. So this is where we pick it up in Matthew 19, verses 11 and 12. He's talking to them about singleness. Now, for those who are able to be single, he said, not everyone can receive this saying, talking about singleness, but only those to whom it is given. For there are, there are eunuchs, and parenthetically, eunuchs are missing some body parts. They're devout in that way, and they are committed to whatever their role is, they're uh, they're committed to that role, and physically they're, they're eunuchs. So Jesus identifies it this way. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Here's where Jesus, this next part, is really kind of scandalous in his culture. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here's why this is kind of Jesus is knocking them back on their heels is because it really wasn't a role, especially for somebody like himself, a single man, early 30s, to be walking around teaching. If you were able to be married, you should have been married. Part of the blessing of Israel was to multiply and be fruitful. And so for a young man, and especially Jesus, the firstborn of his family, to remain single, he would have been a bit of an oddity. He would have been stood out a little bit that he wasn't married at that point in his life. And so Jesus is introducing this idea that some people are not going to marry because from birth they are not physically matched to get married. We'll just leave it simply like that. Others take a vow or they are committed to service and they are made eunuchs so they can't marry and they can't be in relationship. Jesus introduces this idea, really, of just saying, and then there are those who, for the sake of the kingdoms, they've made themselves a eunuch, kind of air quotes. They've positioned themselves to where they're not giving themselves in marriage so that they can be in service to Christ. Jesus identifies singleness as something from birth, from physical limitation, something the outcome of their vocation, and then this last one, something that somebody might choose for the sake of serving God. Now, to clarify, some would choose this for a lifetime. And they would say, I devote myself. And it's kind of that, what we would think of as like a, a monk or a sister, a father, you know, who enters the priesthood and they take vows of celibacy and they enter in uh, to, to remain single for devotion to Christ. But it's not only that context. There's people in more Protestant roles who would take similar vows and position themselves and say, I want to devote my life to Christ. And so I'm going to choose this lifestyle to serve him. But there are others who are married, but right now they aren't. 
Maybe they were married, but the death of a spouse has left them single. Maybe they were married and divorce has now left them as a single. Different circumstances they they might be in. So they, they may say, well, I'm single, but it's not because I've taken a vow or I want to be. It's just because of life circumstances of, of where I'm at. Maybe because of my career. I, I worked a number of years, and because I was very involved in my life and the different things that I did, I just never met somebody along the way, and it just hasn't happened. I'm not opposed to being married, but it just hasn't happened. So there's, there's a whole range of reasons that somebody might be single, but the, the focus is, is that when you're at that point, if you're a single, it's not by accident. And it's not a lesser status in any way. In fact, it's part of your calling right now while God has you in that place. And it may be for the rest of your life or it may just be for a season of your life. But it's your point of calling, just as it is a calling for a married person to minister through that relationship and demonstrate the love of Christ through their marriage relationship. So as a single, you're at the place where God is using you right where you're at. And the intent or the desire of Christ would be that you use that place where you're at to minister and to love others out of that role of being a single. How is it different? Well, as a married person, my life and and my marriage to Jerry demonstrates the love of Christ of the depth of intimacy and closeness is the same depth and intimacy that Christ desires to have with us. It's supposed to mirror that. And, and that's why even physical intimacy is supposed to mirror that. It's not meant just to bring pleasure, although that's an experience that married couples have. But even more so, it has a bigger picture of intimacy because the intimacy reflects God's intimacy with us. That he knows us so deeply. He is woven together with us as we commit ourselves to Christ. That we know him and we are known by him. Do you understand how marriage is so much deeper than just two people making a decision because, eh, seems like a good choice. I kind of like him. I kind of like her. Let's give it a shot. Now this is a reflection of the intimacy and the deep love of Christ. And so that's a unique type of reflection that marriage holds. But wait a minute, singles, you're not off the hook on this. It's, it's not, oh, I'm single, so I get, you know, to have as many relationships and types of relationships as I want. Nope, 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 nope. No, what you do is you demonstrate the breadth of Christ's love by having loving relationships with different people that are grounded in Scripture and grounded in the Spirit. And so where my limitation is, I give time and attention to Jerry to show the intimacy and the closeness of Christ's love. You have the freedom and the ability to demonstrate the breadth of God's love for so many different people and to be present with people in different ways that I never could as a married man. That's part of your calling. That's part of the way that God uses your singleness. And so my calling to God, if I'm single, my calling by God is to love Jesus Christ through loving relationships that bear fruit. Notice that's a little bit different than a married person. Not through my marriage, but through loving relationships that bear fruit. Through my singleness, I'm called to bless other people. The end result is the same. My singleness, if you're a single uh, man or woman today, your calling is to bless other people through your singleness. The ways that you can engage in relationship is different than in a married couple. And so the goal, the desire that God would have for you is that that wouldn't point to a limitation or somehow that you're just supposed to sit on your hands and wait until God decides to give you a spouse. No, 
You're supposed to engage with his kingdom and fulfill his purposes, all the while remaining pure before him by devoting yourself to his purposes and his cause, keeping that celibate lifestyle and saying, Lord, I don't know how long this will be, but Lord, you know I want to get married. Or a revelation, an understanding from, from God that tells you, no, I really feel like I'm supposed to remain single and to serve Christ the rest of my life as a, as a single male or a single, single woman. These are really powerful, the way that God wants to use us in these roles. So whether you're single or you're married, we are a blessing to others through that calling. It's kind of simple, isn't it? I mean, it's simple to say. (laughs) It's challenging to live out. But whether we're married or single, we're a blessing to others through that calling, not in spite of it. So if you're married, your spouse is not holding you back from fulfilling God's call. Let's shoot that nonsense out the door. Get rid of it. Your spouse is not limiting you. They're not keeping you. No, you are to love your spouse as a reflection of Christ's love through you. If you're single, that is not a limitation. God is not holding you back. No, he's he's wanting to bless people and use you through your singleness. It may be that way in the short term. It may be that way a long term. But that's where God wants to bless others through your life. We all have limitations. If you're married, you have limitations. There's certain ways you can't express the love of God to multiple people because you're focused on one person. If you're single, you have limitations in that you don't get to express the intimacy and closeness of God's love, but you're expressing it to a breadth of people, the love of Christ and their service to Christ. And so whether we're serving as a single or a married, we're living out that calling It's not a hindrance. We all have limitations. So your function with one another is to be a gospel witness. And I hope that as a wrap-up this morning that you'll see that, that we're going to finish with this closing uh, worship song. And what I want you to hear and I want you to understand is that if you're married, your spouse is not limiting you from fulfilling God's call. No, quite the opposite. They are part of your calling through which you're supposed to love Christ and demonstrate the love of God in your union. If you're single, you are not being limited. You are not on a shelf waiting for God to bring you together with somebody else so then you can be a valid or an expression of God's love. No, you can start loving and you should be loving right now, demonstrating the breadth of Christ's love to the world and the way that he's working in your life and accomplishing his purposes. Will you join me in standing and as you do. Our desire is to cut through the brokenness of this world. To cut through all the ways that relationships serve people and don't reflect the work of Jesus Christ. I love my marriage, but if my marriage only serves me, it's falling short. And if I go way back to when I was single in my late teens, early 20s, my singleness was only serving me. It wasn't serving Christ. And I was missing it. So God said, take time out. (laughs) Stop dating. Stop trying to find relationships. You don't know how to reflect the love of God. And so I was missing it. So if you're not seeing how God can use you as a single, I just pray that you would begin to ask God, how in this season, in this moment, Would you want to use my life as a single? If you're married, Lord, how do you want to reflect your love 
through our union, through our relationship, this covenant relationship that shows how you want to bless others. Father, as we come to this time of response, I thank you that, uh, again, you have a custom word for each person here, that where there's shame or they've been feeling like they've undercut or or fallen short of what you would have for them in their marriage, Um, they've been through a divorce or God, they're not in oneness with their spouse now. There's some disharmony, disunity there. Lord, I know you can speak to those areas to begin to bring healing and cut through the brokenness to bring true relationship that reflects your heart. Lord, I know there's singles in the room who have felt less than or been made to feel less than because they're not married and people take the approach of, well, someday you'll be married as though that's the ultimate goal. And so they've been made to feel less than or that their life doesn't really count. And so, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, now you just break through that and just affirm the singles in our congregation that you want to minister through their singleness, not in spite of it. And all of us, Lord, join together in unity in your body. Whether married or single, our goal is to glorify your name as the name above every name. Amen.